We'll start with 16, 1 Samuel 16. Does everybody remember how to handle the crisis when it comes? Are you ready for being a steward or a, a representative of God in the suffering that God brings and allows for you to, to endure? The Bible's full of it. Your life is full of it, and that does not contradict what the Bible teaches that we suffer. The Bible has basically two reasons why Christians suffer. Basically two reasons that are... Um, both involved, but there are two basic causes. One is that the rod is out and God as a shepherd is helping us get back on the path. And I, I kind of gesture like this, that that rod of correction, that discipline is uh, just gentle. Well, compared to God's omnipotent power, it is, but he has a way of disciplining us in a way that really gets us right where we need, <laughs> where, we, where we're going to be sensitive and respond quickly We'll jump back right on the path if we're wise. That's one reason for discipline, for correction. If you're getting it wrong, if you have a heavenly father, Hebrews chapter 12 says your heavenly father is going to bring out the rod and correct you. And it isn't the rod of correction in the scriptures and in, in Proverbs and Hebrews is not just the exercise of authority in a general sense. It's a specific kinetic correction on the gluteus maximus. That's what it, what it means. And it hurts. And it's not designed to injure, it's designed to um, correct. And I, I make a big distinction between punishment and discipline. Punishment or getting what you deserve is not God's discipline. That's the lake of fire. You believers aren't headed to the lake of fire. Discipline is necessary correction for a course correction that God wants to bring. And at times, as we see in various Bible uh, historical events, like for the life of David, sometimes the discipline comes in installments because not only is he correcting you, but he's reminding you, don't do that, and don't ever go back there. And do you remember when you went back there? Don't do that. And, and that, that happens. Um, but in those cases, it's divine discipline for correction. That's one cause of our suffering. The other cause that's broadly stated is for our growth. It's the, the principle of resistance exercise causes hypertrophy <clears throat> if if you lift weights your body grows muscle mass and that's a painful thing to do but it's not only painful it partly is painful but there's more than just pain there's also getting strong under that and there's a great feeling and response that comes from that and so so that's a kind of that's one of the causes for christian suffering that he allows us to endure suffering for our growth and uh, it may be that sometimes he's doing both at the same time, or that what began as discipline is now for growth, and, and the Bible doesn't really parse it that closely, but the loving, perfect, holy, righteous God who we serve, when he's bringing discipline or testing and training and, and suffering for growth, like we saw last time in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with the Apostle Paul, when he's bringing this for you, it's for your good. And the big theological principle you need to get hold of, and I need to live, and we need to think about every day, is that if God wants me to have it, I want it. And if God doesn't want me to have it, I don't want it. And that is a, an article of faith. If God wants me to go hit the gym and do a little bit more exercise than I felt like doing, I want it, but I don't feel like it, but I want it. I know that if I think it through, it's best for me and God wants it. And at the end of the process, the perfectly, you know, the perfect heavenly trainer is going to get the muscle development of my spiritual life that he wants. We're going to get proven character, in other words, out of this suffering. Another way to say it is when God gives me a command, it's always for my best, for my good. There are two ways commands happen too. Did you know that? Two ways we get commands. A lot of twos today. The first way to give a command is that you say, do this. It's a positive command. It's, this is what I want you to do. When God says, this is what I want you to do, understand, he's saying, I who want the best and highest for you know how to get you there. These are the steps along the way. Do this, and then do this, and do that, and then do that. His commands are always for your advancement, your good, your um, 
elevation in his, in his plan. You want what God wants for you? Get with what he tells you he wants. Don't get general and say, God wants good things for me, and then not listen to what he says about how to get there. So that's the first one is the positive commands. You shall love the Lord your God, he tells Israel in Deuteronomy 6. You shall, you will, you're responsible to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Okay? What about uh, the other kind? I said there's two kinds of commands. Well, you know, there's a negative command. It's where God says don't do it. Now, do you know why God says not to do it? Because he loves you. Because he wants the highest, the best for you. He wants to glorify himself and how he blesses and exalts you. That's the nature of the creator we serve. He is waiting. He's standing by to pour blessing. And that's, that's Psalm 23. He's in the banquet hall. He's like, why are you not here? The, the, the decanter's ready to pour. Where's your cup? I'm trying to run it over. That's God. He wants to bless. And it's going to be in his way. But when he says don't do it, it's because that's going to bring you out of that channel of blessing. It's, it's not good for you. It's not what you want. And that's different from how we feel sometimes. There's a close connection, I've always said, between our sin nature, our sinful tendencies and our lusts. There's a close connection between that tendency to, to make bad choices and our feelings. And all our feelings are not sin. But many of our sins are emotionally uh, laden. They're, they're connected to our feelings. Let me prove it to you. You never did something you shouldn't have done because you didn't want to. <laughs> I never did the wrong thing because I forced myself to do the wrong thing. I felt like it. That's, uh, that, that's what I'm saying. There's a close connection between the way we feel, our inner feelings, and our sinful nature. And, um, but that's not the only thing about our feelings. There's joy. There's Joy inexpressible and full of glory. There's the results of our spiritual lives in the fruit of the Spirit and joy and how our feelings are connected to God. So it isn't just that emotions are bad, it's that bad emotions are bad, and you have to parse that through. So I'm saying that God wants to bless you, and I'm saying that you have a a participatory role. You have something to do with that. And that something is um, the, the first thing we teach little kids in Sunday school. What's the first thing? It has to do with biblical ownership or radical stewardship or what the Bible actually says about how you're supposed to live your life and what he's entrusted to you. What's that number one topic that we teach that puts you on notice that you have personal responsibility before God? It's the concept of volition. It's the whole thing in all biblical discussions of government. It's the capacity to make choices. Government is the making of choices that will rule in those choices over others. That's what government is. It's decision-making. And decision-making comes from the right or the power to make a decision or authority. And authority is the exercise of the capacity to choose to make decisions for that which has been delegated. See what I mean? It all goes to volition. And um, what's really, the volition means the ability to choose, to make choices. Uh, uh, your yes button and your no button. Right hand, yes button. Left hand, no button. God says, love me. Yes or no, you make a choice. And that's how it is. That's how we're made. And that's what the Bible is constantly presenting. And that's in Genesis chapter two. He says, don't eat from that tree. But he doesn't grab Adam's hand and then keep him away from the tree. He says, you with the brain, you, you with the ears there, you hear what I'm saying, don't eat from that tree. It's a command. And it's a choice that he now has to make. And God doesn't hold his hand and say, ah, don't you get that apple? He says, or whatever fruit. He says, don't do it. And then Adam has to choose. And this is throughout the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures. It's a huge topic. <clears throat> Radical ownership or biblical ownership, the idea of everything that God has placed on you, every good thing and bad thing that you're dealing with, you and I can see as a duty that God has given us to deal with volitionally. We have choices to make about those things. You have challenges in your life. I have challenges in my life. These are not just obstacles to my happiness. These are stewardships that God has allowed me to endure and to see what I'll do with them with my choices. And this is a way more important thing to think about than how I feel. I could get really down about the hard things that I'm dealing with. You name the, the, the source of the struggle, the source of the challenge in your life. It's usually people. It's usually people. 
It may be people that you're closely related to. It may be your spouse. It may be your parents. It may be your children. It, but, or it may just be that you don't have any of those problems, and so you come to church, you find your problems at church. And you got people problems here in the household of the faith. Well, of course, not here at Preston City Bible Church. But people problems are, are often the biggest problems. And it's, if you really boil it down to what are the, why are we struggling, it's probably something petty. Probably something way less important than the resurrection or the Holy Spirit living in our hearts forever or that God the Son took our sins on the cross. Probably something uh, not that important, but we get wrapped around the axle, as we used to say in the army. We get really upset about things that are kind of not as important. And what I'm saying is, instead of saying, um, woe is me, this hurts, I mean, say that. Grab some lament psalms and take them to the Lord. Pour out your heart to God and you know, wash your pillow with tears and be careful not to cry so much that your bed floats away, right? It hurts, and that, that's, not, that's, that's not in question. It hurts. But that's not all there is, and you can't just sit there on this hurts. It's this hurts, and, and I'm responsible. This hurts, and I've got duty to deal with this pain. It's a stewardship, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 12. In the case of Paul, he was supposed to be brought to weakness so that God's strength could be manifest through him despite his weakness. He was supposed to be brought to that place. So it's a stewardship God gave Paul, that thorn in the flesh. And it was for him to carry. And he said, Lord, take it away. And God said, I'm not taking it away. You have to bear this. So um, we also talked about the five R's last time of uh, battle drill number one. Now I'm talking in code. Everybody like the code? (laughs) Battle drill number one in the army Whenever you get someone shooting at you, you're supposed to shoot back. Isn't that great? That's really smart. If someone's shooting at you, you're supposed to shoot back. You're supposed to draw and fire. You're not supposed to um, take the universal position of, I'm about to get hit with a line drive, right? In Little League, that's not the position when you get shot at. You're supposed to duck a little bit and shoot back as fast as you can. And it won't be well aimed, it'll, but it will be the best you can do quickly. And then you seek cover and concealment. That's the second thing, cover and concealment, and then the other things that they have to do to start reacting and maneuvering. Well, in in our battle drill number one, what we said is that we need to react to the situation by grabbing a promise from God and the return fire phase of, of the problem that comes in that God's given us to trust him through. We grab a promise that God has given us because we're so emotionally compromised and so shocked by the event that we've just got to grab hold of something and we can say, even in this, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. We can grab Romans 8, 28 anytime. We can grab Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We can grab any of a number of places where God said he's got a plan and I'm part of it and he is working through this. Lots of promises in the Bible. And we'll respond to the circumstance by, by our faith. And it's all faith. And that's the thing you have to do. I didn't say you feel faithings. I didn't say you feel faithfulness. I said you trust him. And that's different from how you and I feel. That's the thing. Trusting God is different from how I feel this pain. And you've got to be able to parse these things out. Yes, this hurts, and he's letting it hurt. That's the thorn in the flesh. But he's given me revelation about some of the pains we suffer are for our growth and for his glory, so I can trust him through that. That's why you have 2 Corinthians 12. Okay. I told you to turn to 1 Samuel because I want to turn the corner on this discussion from suffering and trial and trouble, at least for now, where you see that those things as a stewardship to one of our favorite stories in the Bible is the story of David's anointing and elevation in the hearts of the nation. He's designated to be the next king of Israel, the second king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He's designated or anointed to be the king. It'll be a long time before he will be made the king. But have you ever noticed the connection between the stories in, um, in 1 Samuel 16 and 17? Some of you are like, I don't even know that there was a 1 Samuel 16 and 17. Well, in my Bible, um, those stories are right there um, with this being the beginning. So we're pretty early in the narrative. Uh, we do a round number for David's life, about 1,000 BC, the round number. So 3,000 years ago, these things happened, and the world's been captivated by it ever since. The first people to be captivated by the events of uh, David and Goliath, the big battle in, uh, in the Valley of Elah, were the, um, the Jewish people. 
the first uh, to be captivated were those that were um, the first witnesses, the, the army and then the nation as they got the story back of the magnificent work of God through who would be the, the future king. But did you notice the connection? In 1 Samuel 16, God sends the prophet Samuel to anoint or designate David as the next king. What does that have to do with biblical ownership or radical stewardship? What does that have? Well, the king is designated by God to be the one that will be the caretaker of his people. It's the biggest load you could possibly imagine, the biggest burden of stewardship responsibility. And what God wants is a man after his own heart who will shepherd his people Israel. I said a man after God's heart, that's the inner person, who will then be equipped to shepherd. It's like a shepherd leading sheep. That's the way God portrays the task of taking care of people, to shepherd his people Israel. That's 1 Samuel 16. God sovereignly sends the prophet to say, you will be the king over his brothers. And that's going to be a problem. We know that when the younger brothers promoted over the other brothers, the younger brothers don't like that. That's the last 10 chapters of Genesis with Joseph and his brothers. 10 plus 10, 11 chapters. But in 1 Samuel 17, it isn't God's sovereign anointing by the prophet saying words. It's God's sovereign arrangement of circumstances on the battlefield with an impossible foe where God showcases and prepares and equips, he has prepared and equipped David to be the shepherd that the nation needs. God shows through the circumstances and how he arranges events that David is the right one to rule and the people love him because of what he does there in the Valley of Elah. That's the two stories in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, God's anointing of David and then God's elevation of David in the hearts of the people. See, it isn't just that Samuel comes out as the prophet and says, hear ye, hear ye, thus saith the Lord, David, David the next king. Okay, it, it, it's not how he does it. That's in secret that he's anointed. It's that God sets David up as the Audie Murphy of his day, as the great war hero David, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Now, people will be cynical, unbelieving um, students of the Bible. I never understood why you would be that. It, actually, it is great literature. I mean, the greatest, so okay, maybe. But an unbelieving scholar will say that, that this is written with a bias, with a Davidic like uh, political bias to, to justify him being a usurper against Saul when Jonathan should have been the next king, Saul's son. And there's this cynical history. And I don't want to do a whole lot more background, but, um, but if you let the narrative speak, it is very pro-David, but it's much more pro-Yahweh. It's what God is doing to, to set up his king for his people. Now, the reason I want to do radical... Uh, stewardship or biblical ownership of, of one's responsibilities in the story of David is because the battle of, of David and Goliath, we all get focused on the, the short guy and the tall guy sort of in profile with the, the short guy slinging a rock and the tall guy running his mouth and, and t- catching one in the forehead. And that, you know, four, four seconds of, of history, we focus on that. And if you watch a movie, I've never seen a movie that adequately uh, does, that does a good enough job with the David and Goliath story. I like movies, but um, I've never seen one that gets this right because it's such a short thing. It's, you know, how long does it take to sling a stone, run up to him and throw it and then cause a skull fracture and a guy fall down dead? It's really fast. And, but like everything in the Bible where the story has this focal event like the cross, like Jesus' crucifixion, the way the story gets told in the narrative is, um, is not focused on the action event itself. It's there. It's the surrounding circumstances and often what the people are saying to each other. And if, if you watch 1 Samuel 16 and ask the question, who's the shepherd? Yahweh is the shepherd who's designated an under-shepherd to shepherd his people. If you ask the question in 1 Samuel 17, it's really exciting. So let's read through a little bit. The Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 verse 1, He said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've uh, rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, how can I go? Where will, when Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. 
And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one whom I designate for you. God has a clandestine work for Samuel to do. And I don't know if you've noticed that God is all about the communication, all about how things are presented. Jesus, God, the son in the flesh of man is called the word who became flesh. The word or the communication is a big deal. God is all about this one being quiet. We, the world receiving the prophet Samuel's writing, we get to be observers after the fact. But this was a clandestine work. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Now, we have no idea from what's said in the text whether this was audible to others around Samuel or if it was just internal to Samuel, but here's what I think is happening in the story. I think God is speaking internally where Samuel is hearing God and Samuel's responding to God internally where God is, they're having a conversation and I don't think it's audible to others and I don't think so because of how the rest of the story goes. God keeps talking in his, in his earpiece um, through the conversation with Jesse's family and the, 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 the family isn't part of that conversation. Samuel's running two conversations in this and that's an interesting model. Not that you're gonna hear directly from God in your earpiece, that's not what I mean. But that you can always be uh, praying, since it says in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, 17, to pray without ceasing. You can always be having that conversation. You can always be praying that Nehemiah prayer, give me uh, favor in, the, in this man's sight. Behold, I was the cupbearer of the king. You can always um, have that dialogue, if you will, of knowing what God has told you in his word and talking to him in prayer silently without having to pause. Excuse me, um, your honor, I need to tell the Lord something real quick. You could, you could just, in the moment, and we should be, and, and Samuel demonstrates that if you watch the story closely. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? He said, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons, invited them to the sacrifice. And when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointing is before him. Now, do y'all know the story? Have you heard of Eliab before? He shows up as a really important dialogue partner with David in the David and Goliath story. Eliab is not a major character in the Bible, but in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, he's a big character. He's important. He looks, he's big and tall and beautiful. And this is what God's man, Samuel, thinks when he sees him. He says, wow, he's even better than Saul. He's, this must be the one. We're going to do better than Saul, so it'll be the tall, handsome, oldest son. Surely the Lord's Mashiach, or Messiah, is before him in verse 6. That word anointed means, is, is Messiah, it means anointed. Mashiach, the, the one anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Wow, that's a really important principle to grab hold of. And if I ask this from the lens of what is your stewardship responsibility, which one should take priority, outward appearance or the inner character? See right there, there's a huge principle on stewardship. Your outward appearance is a stewardship. God's given you that, but so is the heart, and it's more important. What is God looking at? And what, what about that? Is not God's opinion, God's perspective, God's take on you a stewardship for you to think about? It's a duty that you can embrace. It's part of your relationship with God. As we saw the first time when we looked at uh, biblical, biblical ownership, and we we're talking through uh, God giving the Ten Commandments to Israel, and that's sacred trust. See, this principle of God looking at the heart, you're now responsible. You're volitionally responsible to think about the way God thinks about your inner person because you've had the revelation from God and now it's a stewardship from you in his word. If you've heard what we've said, if, and I've heard what we've said, now I'm responsible to think in those terms. And that will save you from countless troubles that people get hung up on with the outward part, the outward appearance. It's, it's part of life, but it's not the core. God is looking at the heart. By the way, does this mean that God is looking for unattractive uh, rulers? He's like, nobody here uh, has fallen out of the ugly tree enough. Do you have any uglier signs? That's not the point in the story, right? Um, the, what he's saying is that that's not the issue. And it turns out David's a good-looking kid. 
and it, it's irrelevant. It, it turns out it's irrelevant. Can we all say it's irrelevant? It's irrelevant. Thank you. So he says, do not look on his appearance at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For a man, uh, God sees not as man sees. For a man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, um, another principle I just have to harp on for a second. Did you know that you were, just not, you were not just given a stewardship from God to look on people's heart? He didn't say you, knowing God looks at the heart, are now looking at people's hearts. You don't know what you don't know. You know what people do. You know what people say. You get a sense of them better and better. You kind of get an idea. But it's like that game we played in kindergarten. I had a teacher, a really neat teacher, uh, where when you're trying to figure out what's going on inside of someone, it's kind of like there's a a speaker who's looking at the picture and then a drawer, uh, an artist, who's got a a, a pad and a pen and a blindfold. And the, the person looking at the photo says, okay, draw a circle. And so you draw a circle. And you say, in the circle, now you're blindfolded, in the circle, put two, two triangles um, that, like, like a jack-o'-lantern's eyes. And so you're trying to draw that. That's what it's like to try to understand what someone's like on the inside. I mean, try to do that with yourself. It's almost as hard, or maybe in some ways it's harder. But see, you're not told here you are looking at the heart. You're told that God's priority is the heart. And it's really important to get that distinction. Some of us read, read this and say, oh yeah, I'm scrying out people's inner things. You're not. You're not. You're, you're, you know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. And that's one of the great blessings is intellectual honesty to say when you know something and when you don't. And it's a really hard thing to do. But here's what you can know. The Lord Jesus has gone in the flesh and he died for your sins and he rose from the dead and he's promised you not only do you have eternal life now but an eternal inheritance and eternal kingdom with eternal expanding glory. So you know those things for sure and you may or may not understand the malicious, horrible, corrupt soul of your spouse. But you know the Lord. So in verse nine, next Jesse, I'm the verse eight, Jesse called Abinadab uh, and made him... um, Avinadav, Avinadav would be the Hebrew. It's probably better in Hebrew. Um, Abinadab. I have never met a man named Abinadab. And made him pass before Samuel and said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. So why does Samuel know to say no to this one? And that's what he's saying audibly to Jesse's family. Um, sure your kid's great but the lord hasn't chosen him how does he know to say that because the earpiece because god's telling him not this one just like he did with eliab and samuel said to uh, the lord jesse thus made seven of his sons pass before samuel samuel said to jesse the lord has not chosen these and sam boy do i hate saying no to people i just want to let's just have seven kings you know Let's, let's divide this up and we can all rule in a, in a, a sept, what is it, what is it uh, the, the triumvirate, a septumvirate. We'll have seven kings and everybody gets to have a king. We can all have our same crown and everybody can have a juice box of the flavor of their choice and, and it'll be fine. Everybody's, no, nope, God has, he's choosy. He has what he wants. He knows what he wants and he's the CEO of this enterprise and he knows what's best for his business. And so you better just figure that out. And that's what revelation is. That's where God is telling you, I know what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing. And so Samuel has direct revelation from God. What would that be? When you get revelation from God, that'd be a stewardship. That would be a responsibility that's been entrusted to you. And then he's supposed to make a decision based on that revelation. And so he carries the message because that's what Samuel, the prophet or the seer does. He says what God said. And so now think about the stewardship on Abinadab. What's he supposed to do with that? Oh, I'm rejected for being king. Oh, great. Who's he going to be? Not me. What's he supposed to do with that? He's supposed to take it as revelation from God because Samuel, the prophet. He's supposed to say, so God's choosy. He didn't choose me for this, okay? He's gonna do something with me. He's my God, I'm his kid. He can, he can have his way. And that's what you do with the relationship with God is God, you have your way. And um, I'm happy to say that because God has sovereignly arranged for you and me to be born in the time which we are and we're worshipers of Yahweh and this age that we're in, this side of the cross and resurrection you have the Holy Spirit. All of us have the Holy Spirit. Only the king, Samuel or Saul and then David, they had a special endowment of the Spirit. This new thing that we have in the church, everybody gets the Holy Spirit for God's purpose, for God's service. 
And furthermore, Jesus, the Messiah, the one that has been anointed to rule, he's going to rule over a kingdom, and we, the bride, are going to rule with him. So I'm sorry, you will not be rejected from this kickball team. You are part of what God is doing eternally, and you read about that in Romans 9. Sorry, Romans 8, with the freeing of the earth from its corruption to sin by the sons of God. That's Romans 8. It's a magnificent passage that a lot of people miss, which is eschatology. All right, so Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. And then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, as you know, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So no eating, no fajitas or whatever they're going to have. We had goat fajitas. I called it fajitas. They just called it goat uh, when I was over in Iraq, and um, I'm sure there's some sort of sit down on a, on a big rug kind of feast that's about to happen. Um, so, so we're not going to eat, and we won't sit down until he comes here. Now we have seven sons, Eliab and uh, Abinadab and Shema, and then four more that don't even get named. How would you like to be one of the unnamed sons? Not only was I not selected... So you can imagine the frowny face, well, not me. But I didn't even get named. He's like, oh, the, uh, the rest of them. But God is not unconcerned about the rest of them. He's got a plan for each one of their lives and their response to God and his commands to love him and to love others for his sake is what the law in Israel told them. Their response to God individually and those requirements and, and how, how to relate to God and their administration, that was a... a, a that could, could be a magnificent relationship, and that doesn't mean you're going to be the king. It doesn't mean you're going to get named in Scripture. But, um, see, we think it's about us, and we're the hero of our story, and we're not. The Lord is the hero of our story. And we're, we're actually, <laughs> pardon the expression, men, we're the damsel in distress. We've got to have the hero come save us from the dragon. That's, that's who we are. All right. So you can see all kinds of overtones of responsibility through this as, as, as Samuel shepherds Israel. He's the judge, the last of the judges, before the kings were anointed. And the prophet, who's the last judge in the train of Moses, is handing over this executive authority, not prophetic authority, executive authority to this anointed king. And that's what he does with Saul, and now he's going to do it with David. So the eighth son... He sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy. That's red. The Hebrew says red, and we ruddy means red cheeks. Um, but it doesn't say red cheeks. It says ruddy, and the scholars are debating this, and I've told you before. It's either that he has a particular rosy complexion, or he's, he flushes, like his, people that flush in their cheeks, or perhaps, or that he's got red hair. And most Hebrew... Um, people that I've seen weigh in on this, Hebrew scholars would probably tend toward the hair. And that's not a problem genetically for anything. Edom was redheaded. Red, he had red hair all over his body when he was born, Edom or, or Esau. And, um, so, and the same language of Esau is used here. So probably redheaded kid. Not a soulless uh, ginger. There's no such thing. But um, we joke about that in the culture, I know. So he, he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy. And, and had with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. What The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. God is now speaking in the earpiece to Samuel there. Arise, anoint him. Samuel, get up. That's the one. So, so that's, the, that's the language of this inner conversation that is a stewardship responsibility God has given Samuel. Can you apply this to your life? I don't expect, expect that it will not be that God speak directly to you. You've just heard the prophetic word of God in 1 Samuel. Do you see this as a sacred trust that you have to act on? Samuel did. God speaks to him. He says, this is what I want you to do. What Samuel does is then he rises, gets his horn of oil, and pours. He does what God said because it's God because it's God's word. That's really a great pattern for how to deal with, with our creator. And we're just warming up to who's the real shepherd in chapter 17. Verse 13 says, And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord Salah came mightily or broke forth upon him. This is one of your several words or verbs in the Old Testament for the Holy Spirit's work in a, a believer's life. Most all people in the Old Testament did not have an indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit 
a very few, a very small number did. We read about this in Numbers where, uh, where Moses is having one of his fainting fits, as Spurgeon would call it. He's, um, I can't do it. I just can't tend this people. I need help. And God's like, well, I gave you my spirit. And he's like, I need help. And so the Lord says, bring the elders together. And then this same kind of thing, the Holy Spirit breaks forth upon the elders of Israel. And then they're prophesying. And... Um, and there's a problem. Someone says, hey, Moses, they're prophesying. And, and Moses says, wouldn't it be great if all God's people had the Holy Spirit? And there, that's this ministry of an occasional endowment for, pers- for, for a purpose that we see all through the Old Testament. It's, uh, it's the king, not the whole country. The king gets the Holy Spirit. And so when I say this, I want you to understand what a high privilege, what an amazing thing it is that you and I have, the Spirit of God living in us. I think this is the, the highest stewardship. This is the highest responsibility you need to take ownership of is that God lives in you to make you fit and, and, and capable of being about his work. And, and you, you, are, you are an amazing, an amazing thing God has made in that you're one with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit and you're empowered and dwelt and commanded to be filled. You're never commanded to be indwelled by the Spirit. You're commanded to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit, empowered for his service. And so this is what happens to David, and that's a great stewardship. How does David treat that stewardship in his life? How does, do you know about David's consideration of the Holy Spirit, that the third person of the Trinity lives in him or is working in him? Do you know what the Bible says about this? And Psalm 51, after his great sin with Bathsheba killing Uriah and Uriah's uh, mother's son and Uriah's father's son and Uriah's brother's brother and all the people that are affected by David's murderous um, uh, rampage by having Uriah killed, this great hero of the Bible, when he confesses his sin and, and says, I was wrong and, and goes to God with his request for restoration he asks that god make not take the holy spirit from him now why would he ask that i'll give you a hint you don't have to ask that the holy spirit's come to abide in our hearts forever that's a different administration why does david need to ask that because god took the holy spirit away from saul because of his rebelliousness and he gave that that empowerment of the spirit for the king of israel to david so What an amazing stewardship God gave David, this empowerment of God the Spirit to be about God's work. Now let's get Christian, okay? Let's let's go from the Hebrew Scriptures, which are the foundational Scriptures of the Christian faith, leading to the New Testament Scriptures. Let's let's go to the New Testament, and um, well, actually, let's go to to just a few hundred years to Isaiah. What does Isaiah say is going to be true of the the Anointed One, the Messiah? What's he going to be like? In Isaiah 11, he's empowered by the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit's described as a sevenfold spirit because of the seven ministries or the seven descriptions of the Holy Spirit there. And that shows up again in Revelation 4 and 5. And so the Holy Spirit is the silent, behind the scenes actor. He's like the wind, Jesus says in John 3. What an amazing stewardship that David has given the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what, what is David's occupation at this point? He's like a he's 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 sweeping a used car lot. He's not an important player on the, on the, in the perspective of men. He's just watching dad's flock. It doesn't say why. We can conjecture and speculate all we want based on what we see later, what we read in the Psalms. I suspect that dad puts the one in charge of the, the livelihood, the one that you can trust to take care of it, but I don't know. I've seen a lot of shepherd boys in the Middle East. They're not wealthy people. They're, they're teenagers, and they're going to do their job or else and, and all that. Little boys tending the flock. See it a lot over there. David's not an important player in geopolitics. He's not important. He doesn't have an important job. He's not. He's, he's, he's a nobody. He's a nobody in his own family. He now has the Holy Spirit of God in him, which is the designated empowerment for the king. So he's got the king's ability, but he doesn't have the office. And that's, that's 1 Samuel 16. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him and Saul's servants then said to him, behold now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is skillful player on the harp and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he will play the harp with his hand and you'll be well. 
How they came up with this, I don't know. There aren't probably a whole lot of options. Hey, check out this playlist on my phone. That wasn't a thing they would do. Um, they wouldn't connect their phone to their uh, camel's Bluetooth you know, speaker system, stereo system. They're, they're looking for skilled people that can play live music. That's all they've got if, if it's live music. And the harp is probably the going instrument that David's going to play. And so you just have to understand he is involved in um, something that is the, the go-to response of somebody that is um, being terrorized, being um, oppressed. And to them, it probably would look to us like mental illness. And I'm not explaining away the supernatural in Scripture to say that. I'm saying that I think to be demonized or attacked or oppressed by a demon would probably make you crazy. It would probably make you dissociated from reality. It would probably have all kinds of anxiety effects and fearful effects. and all, You could just imagine. And I'm not saying people with anxiety are demonized. I'm saying that um, this is a horrible thing that's happening to him. And the best thing I can think of is, let's get him some music. <laughs> okay. But notice what happens. We, why is this story jammed together like this? David's just secretly anointed. And all of a sudden, we're not in that scene anymore. Cut to, we're in Saul's house. And he's lost the Holy Spirit. Now he's being oppressed by a demon that God has permitted. Why? Because the story is the narrative of David, and the question is, who is the shepherd? Saul can't shepherd anything now. Saul's, Saul's lost it. He's lost the ability, and he needs someone to soothe him. Why do you think David is good with the harp? Because as a nobody watching his dad's flocks, Apparently, that'll soothe the sheep. You have to calm them. You have to speak softly to them. We know a lot about shepherding from reading the Bible. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They know him who calls them. That's a real thing in, in taking care of sheep. They don't know much, but they know the person that feeds them. They know the person leading them that's with them all the time. And so they're, they're quick to come to the person that I'm told, a, a shepherd, um, the, the sheep can hear. And, and I think David is probably really good with the sling because he has time to hone his craft watching the sheep. And I suspect he's really good with the harp because he has, again, time honing his craft watching the sheep. And both of those are tasks related to shepherding a flock. See, if you've got a flock that needs to be calmed down, so you play him some music, I guess. It seems to fit. It's definitely true that if you have lions and bears, as David says in chapter 17, you need a projectile weapon to kill them or scare them off. And that's the sling. That's the shepherd's tool. That's how David becomes Audie Murphy with the sling. David's good with these things because he's a faithful steward of the task he's been given. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who's a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a gibochayil, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. The Lord is with him. What a resume for this guy that is just watching his father's flocks. We don't know how that record got out. We don't know how it's known. But apparently, if you spend some time with David, you're impressed. That seems to be the nature of the people that know David. The best guy in town over there is David. He's a, he smells like he's watching sheep, but he's, he's really quality. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who's with the flock. Now notice Yahweh has already said, the God of Israel has already said through Samuel, he's my man. And now the king, the lower king is saying, hey, I need your son, he's my man. I need him to come. And so he's being elevated in both courts, if you will. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse, send me, um, send me your son David who's with the flock. Jesse took a donkey uh, loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David, his son. This is called tribute. It's also lunch. When your son goes off, you pack him a lunch and um, send provisions. And, and so David is going uh, off with a care package for the king and for the king to provide his, his necessities. And then David came to Saul and attended him and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. What bothers me about this is later Saul is going to say in an interview with David, who's he, what's his dad's name? Who's that kid? His brain, he's, off his, he's, he's off his rocker in the story because it says he loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. They're close associates. By chapter 17, he doesn't know him. And um, he'll get to know him again. 
Saul said to Jesse, saying, let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand. Saul would be refreshed and well, the evil spirit would depart from him. And that, there's all kinds of questions that I, I could ask about that. Is this Holy Spirit music? So it drives away the, 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 the malevolent spirit. Is that, it doesn't say. It just says that God is with David and David is successful. He's been given a mission to soothe the king. He starts soothing the king and it works and he's promoted. And who's the shepherd? Well, in this case, Saul is not the shepherd. He should be, he's the king, he should be the shepherd of God's people, Israel, but he's not because he doesn't shepherd them. He doesn't shepherd anything. He can't shepherd them, he can't take care of himself. But David, the nobody, David from your flocks, David, the son that I can just tell this man that's one of my subjects, I can tell him, just let your son come live with me. I mean, you're not doing anything with him. I'll just, just have him. And okay, I mean, how important are you to anything if the king can just say, you're here now? In these days, everybody's not a slave of the king. And so the king had to say, can I please have your son in my service? Yeah, I'm, I was just using him for, for feed the sheep. No big deal. All right, so we cut to the next scene. The next story in the narrative to develop this question of who's the shepherd is really interesting. It's really interesting. It's really fun because David has been given a stewardship from the Lord. And the question is, this power from the Holy Spirit, this this endowment of God, this knowing, this, the knowledge that he's been marked out to be the king, how should he think? How should he live? How should he relate to the foreign nations around Israel as one marked out to be the king of Israel? What's his mission? What's his responsibility? We're out of time to really get into chapter 17. We'll do 17 next time. But I want you to think about this with me. Think about this awesome story of David regarding stewardship, regarding this ownership of what's been entrusted to him. David is not just the king in waiting of a country. He hasn't just been told, you've got the next, the next when, when Saul's done, it's you. That's not all that's happened. He's not just told you're going to be wealthy because the king has to have the resources to rule. He's not just going to be famous because everybody knows who the king is. That's kind of he represents the country. That's how kings work. It's not that you're just you're going to have a certain lifestyle. Those are all factors in being a king. And it turns out the more you focus on those with David's life, with the Bathsheba story, with Solomon's life especially, with the foreign wives, the more you focus on the lifestyle accoutrement that go with being a king, the worse off it is for you. David is going to be successful because he figures out, I believe from the book of Deuteronomy, the kings are commanded to make their own copy of this book in Deuteronomy 17. He knows his responsibility is the executive of this law. To, in the extent that he's successful, to the extent that David is successful, he is aligned with the revealed word of God. And that's the great stewardship. That's what you and I have in common with David. He had what he had of God's word. We have the completed canon of scripture. What an incredible delegation of responsibility. What a magnificent duty God has given you. He says, this is the way I'm going to do it. You're going to get to know me through these words. You're going to have to reflect on these and meditate on them as Psalm 1 says, day and night. That's how you're going to get to know me. And that's where the blessing is in the treasure trove of God's word. I believe David knew that. I think he, he, stayed, he, swayed from, he, he swerved from that at times. We can see where he failed. When he failed, it's because he's, he's not tracking with the word. You can at least compare the two, his actions to God's word. But this is your stewardship. This has been entrusted to you, that you would know God, this relationship with him in his protocol way. He says, you've got to know me through my word. It's not going to be what we want it to be yet. It's coming. What we want is for these next few decades for the Lord to directly talk to us. We'd like for him to meet us and walk with us in the cool in the evening and walk with me and talk with me and tell me many things. Tell me that I'm his own. He tells you these things in his word and you talk to him about it in your prayers. And that is a difficult arrangement. But it's very wonderful because of how magnificent it is to know him through what he said. 
If you were to see him and see him the way you want to meet people, I don't really know the person until I'm face to face with him. If it was that way, it would blow your mind, literally. You would, you would melt down. You would Raiders of the Lost Ark. At the, you, you couldn't see him. That's what God tells Moses. You can't. It's, you're not capable of this. So let me reveal myself and what I've said. When, when Samuel gets a delegation of God's word, what does he do with it? He carries it out. He takes it seriously. He's God's agent, and he knows that, and it's a direct thing, and he's got the earpiece. The Lord says, go. He, go, he goes. We don't have an earpiece. We've got the, the scrolls, and we know what God wants. So he says, go. We go. And it's a real privilege. God gives the Holy Spirit to David to rule, to think like a king, to act like a king, to do the things kings do, which is the king is supposed to shepherd God's people, Israel. He's already trained as a shepherd after the flesh, and now in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to shepherd the whole country. And that heavy responsibility in both cases for the prophet and for the king, it's really going to be how much of God's word have you assimilated in, in, in the moment that you're in? How saturated are you in the moment with the things of God so that the relationship is working, so that you know him, so that you're relating to him? If you feel spiritual dryness, listen, I'm not telling you that you can go read the Bible for five hours and that's going to solve it. But you might take that time and meditate on what God has said, spend a little time reflecting on it prayerfully, and I do believe that that spark will kindle back up into a flame to, part, to mix my metaphors. If you're wondering, is God really there? You're probably far from his word. You're probably far from some momentum in his word. And that is the magnificent stewardship. You have the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Our Father, thank you for the relationship with you that you've given us and the high calling with these awesome privileges that you presented to us. We have your word. We have the Holy Spirit living in us to teach us the word and to bring it to our memories and to help us uh, use it, to really use it through us. Father, we know that to use your word is to be about your work, to be on mission. That is a challenge to us also, a great stewardship. Thank you for the model of David who, before ever being crowned either by Judah or the whole nation, David was thinking like the king of Israel and concerned, zealous for your glory and representing you, which was the brief, the, the, the role of Israel. Father, help us think in these terms. You've given us this great high calling of a relationship with you according to your word. And I ask you to strengthen us as we pay attention to it in that stewardship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.